you know, this whole life is about evolving for us to become who we truly are, for us to remember who we truly are and to let go of the negative programming, the negative experiences, the things that create more and more disharmony or unhappiness. And um, one of the programs, I've been trying to map the epigenome. What are all the programs that these humans have that they use to create this experience? Welcome to the Chai Chat Podcast. Solutions for empowered living. Engaging, educating, empowering. Each week, your host, Tarun Puri, author of Finding the Guru Within, and Steve Harvey, mindset mentor to A-list celebrities and stars, bring a combined expertise of over six decades in mentoring, coaching, and inspiring positive solutions to the negatives which keep us stuck and unhappy. With a focus on solutions versus problems, in each episode, they discuss topics relevant to the human condition, which challenge us from moving forward into positive growth and ultimate freedom. Through stream-of-consciousness unscripted dialogue and inquiry, they provide practical, deep, and actionable insights to support you in creating and living a happy, successful, fulfilled life. Join us each week and learn how to access your own inner GPS, your guru positioning system, which comes preset with all the solutions you need for empowered living. Living a life of ease versus effort is only a thought away. Let us show you what works and what doesn't. Hello, and welcome to Chai Chat, the podcast. I am Tarun Puri. And I'm Steve Harvey. And today, Steve, we have an amazing, amazing guest. And our episode today is entitled Changing the Source Code, the Key to Unlocking Our Potential. And I don't know about you, but I've been looking for that key for a heck of a long time, Steve. And I'm I am all ears today, which is, okay, I know for me is different, but I promise to listen because I think we're going to learn a tremendous amount about ourselves, about human beings, about peak performance, and how there is a potential within us that is waiting to become unlocked. And our guest today is actually going to lead us into the direction how how he has, by working with elite athletes, by working um, uh, with performance, let's just say the area of peak performance um, globally, uh, has really figured out some mysteries and secrets of the universe, our inner universe. And and, uh, he's going to enlighten us uh, as to his journey and how he's been able to help people truly make sustained long-term permanent changes of the negatives in their lives. So I am so excited. So please tell us a little bit about our guest. Yeah, Dr. Ken West, uh, I had the the privilege of attending uh, one of his um, weekend workshops in Hamburg in Germany uh, a year or two ago now. And uh, to say it was mind-blowing was was, uh, not doing it justice. It really was a phenomenal uh, experience. Uh, and everyone who attended it had the same the same uh, opinion. Um, a little bit about Dr. Ken West. He's a performance scientist who helps international teams and individuals evolve to their higher level, highest level of performance by resolving personal and team limitations. 
To develop this expertise, Ken has spent over 20 years seeing patients as an optometrist in the USA and South Africa, and over 36 years working with elite amateur and professional sportsmen and women in 44 different countries and in 48 different sports. Um, so, I mean, there's a good chance that, you know, a lot of those sporting idols that we you know, admire <clears throat> that are out there across the world, Ken has probably had something to do with their success, you know. And um, he's also spent 30 years mentoring corporations and on multicultural integration and optimization mm -hmm. in Europe, Asia, Africa, and North America. And by uh, integrating diverse well-being disciplines into a simplified model for higher success rates. And six years evolving the performance science graduate program at Oxford University in the UK. Uh, he has had the honor of working with many Olympic medalists, world champions and, and elite coaches and performers in numerous unique disciplines. He now mentors individuals and teaches corporate workshops globally to evolve self-awareness, self-empowerment, self-organization, self-governance, cooperation, and optimization in the personal space and the workplace. So I think Ken knows his stuff. Let's just say that, uh, right? I have a sense he may, and, and I love the, <laughs> I think there's a theme around the self is what I'm picking up. So let's let's stop yeah. this banter and, and let's yeah. get our let's welcome star on. <laughs> welcome Dr. Ken West, welcome. Thank you for inviting me to come spend some time with you. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's really yeah. a pleasure, um, Ken. Uh, um, it's always with someone with the depth and breadth of what you've done. The, uh, you know, the question always is, where do we start? And then I hear a voice saying at the beginning. So it's interesting that um, Steve was saying that as a you know doctor, in the field of vision, you were seeing patients. And I thought, well, that's interesting right there. So could you tell us a little bit about kind of the foundation of where you started with your profession and how it turned into what we are doing now? <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're all here to evolve. So this is really a story of evolution. And, uh, you know, I finished my degree, you know, from Southern California, in 1980 and at that time i you have to do continuing education to keep your license to practice and so i started looking at uh, a new field called sports vision and and i was recruited by a university in south africa so it in the in old apartheid south africa so i i came and and south africa is a sports mad country and uh so I started working with vision and sport in, in South Africa and be, because being isolated from, you know, Farnsworth and some of the other pioneers in the U S I had to figure it out myself. And this phenomenon of me spending a, you know, a couple of hours or a couple of days with sportsmen and then the next weekend, them going to set new records and, and, putting together this world-class performance, uh, it kept happening. And, but fortunate enough, I, I became friends with a, a, a Dr. Ken Jennings, who's one of the top sports psychologists 
on the planet. And he says, it's not what you do, it's how you do it. So I've spent the last 30 years trying to figure out, well, how is it I do what I do? And so working in South Africa, if you have success in one sport or two, then you get called into three, four, five, and six. Whereas, you know, in the U.S., you know, my work's been in Major League Baseball and uh, men's and women's gymnastics, uh, for the most part, some golf. But for the most part, the U.S. market is just so big, you get swallowed up. But in South Africa, you could, it, would, it wouldn't, in the early days, it wasn't uncommon for me to work on six or seven sports in one weekend with youngsters. And, you know, and I, I, I remember the first time that I was asked by the ECB, uh, the English Cricket Board, to work in England. You know, someone told me, well, you know, you have to you have to choose one sport. You have to specialize. And I thought, no, the common denominator between all sports is the human. So if you're looking at performance, it doesn't matter if you're putting on clothes or feeding yourself or having relationships with your family or, you know, just the things that humans do. It's it's all human performance. And so I wanted to look at the pieces of sport that were the same across the board as opposed to the unique tactics or the unique technique, you know, because coaching and that information is usually quite well known. But the, the common thread was seemed to be what was missing. So we started looking at that. And, you know, so I've been invited to, I like projects, uh, especially when people say it's impossible and, uh, so I like to take on things and I just say it's impossible because we haven't figured it out yet. And uh, so, you know, I've been fortunate to, you know, to work, as Steve said, on, you know, it's more than 44 countries and, and 48 sports at international level. And, you know, the hopes and dreams are the same and the biggest challenges are there. But when I got asked to help develop a graduate program at Oxford, which started as the science and medicine of athletic performance. Um, when we started investigating, you know, there's things like the Sports Science Institute of South Africa or the uh, um, AIS, the Australian Institute of Sport or Loughborough in England or the universities in the US, you know, they, they have these huge uh, sports science uh, programs and and people involved in them but you know what we found was that people would come in and they would run all these tests and compile these reports and they so you'd have a report for nutrition and a report for tactics and and biomechanics and the whole list and then they would drop this pile of you know records in front of you and push it at you and say, okay, that's what you need to do to be a, a champion. Yeah. And we found world, worldwide with the, that the performers were actually getting worse. You know, these programs were not producing more world champions and more world-class performance. And the, and the ones when they were successful is when they went with a coach, usually it was a team went with a coach and they would take the pile and they'd push it all to the side, except for maybe one piece and say, okay, we're going to focus on this. So we found the prioritization of information was the key. And so I, I said, well, that's what performance science is. It's not dropping things down the chute, it's the, it's the funnel. And you know, basically working in the elite world of sport is 
I help protect the performers from themselves because they are their own worst enemy. And, wow. you know, and some of the research out of Oxford that we found was that, you know, the, the, the experience that we're all having 90, um, 95% of it is generated by our limbic system, our emotional brain. And that emotion, you know, and that emotional brain is illogical. It doesn't understand time and it's binary. It's either on or off. You're afraid or you're not, you're happy or you're not. So we're flipping that switch on and off. Uh, 4%, only 4% of your experience is generated by your neocortex, your educated mind, you know, your, all of your schooling and all that logic that, you know, that we we try to, our schooling tries to develop us and, and we think that, well, that's all there is, but that isn't. And the last 1% is your brain stem or your fascia where your cellular memory is held. It also is illogical and binary. And so I just decided, well, that's the frontier, you know, the sports psychologists and the psychologists work on the 4% trying to give you coping skills to suppress and control the, the uh, 96%. And that's fine if you're not under stress, but if you, when you get really stressed, then we all flip revert back and act like five-year-olds because, <laughs> because that's when the first trauma happened or whatever. And so, you know, it's like, okay, how can we look at this and, and, and figure out how can we be more effective? So I just said, all right, let's just look at the, the illogical system and there has, there's going to be a logic around that illogical system so that we can learn to work with it. And I had to figure out, well, what is the language that it understands? It doesn't understand English. It doesn't understand German or Japanese or Chinese or anything else. Had to figure out, well, what language does it understand? And what it understands is geometry, light, shape, color. And what we understand now is that the neurons in your brain create geometries. So when the frequency wavelength, uh, you know, of the geometry hits the neurons in the brain through the visual system, it, it vibrates. And so it, it, it resonates like, a, like two tuning forks. And then we can start to see shifts in that, uh, in, you know, in the, in the, the neurons in the brain, which is where we hold and store, uh, memory and and we then we have these emotional uh, reactions or energies attached to those memories that we haul around and that's the baggage that we carry you know and that's the thing working with elite sportsmen is you know people you know walking around that you know the average person has trauma but these traumatic events happen sporadically but elite performers every time they lose it's a trauma and so they're building these traumas up over time. And so you know that, and, and usually that's when they, in their career is when they, they can't cope with the amount of trauma that they've endured. So it's like, okay, how can we quickly and effectively resolve and clear the traumas out so that they can at least start over and, you know, start fresh as opposed to carrying that weight with them. And so, you know, I just started looking at, you know, what are, with all the sportsmen is what are the common factors that, you know, are, how much of the programming is the same and how much of the programming is unique to each one. And, you know, after all these years, 
you know, well over 35 years uh, of working with elite performers is that we find that 80% of the, of the programming is the same. Educated, uneducated, Western, Eastern, doesn't matter what country, what culture, 80% is the same. And then 20% is unique to you, the country, the culture that you are born into, things you choose for yourself, think how you adapt to life. And so it's like, all right, well, if we can at least get the 80% sorted out and then, and then learn to work with the 20% uh, to try to, you know, to, for us to reach our potential. And, you know, this whole life is about evolving for us to become who we truly are, for us to remember who we truly are and to let go of the negative programming, the negative experiences, the things that create more and more disharmony or unhappiness. And um, one of the programs, I've been trying to map the epigenome. What are all the programs that these humans have that they use to create this experience? And one of those is that we have to become more imprisoned every day. So we, we have to build our emotional prisons so, prison so that it becomes more and more stronger and bigger every day. Well, what good is that doing us? <laughs> so, the prison of the mind. Uh, sorry, what? The prison of the mind. <laughs> yes. The, the, yeah. Or it's, yeah. My personal prison, don't mess with it. <laughs> and um, so it's so it's well why can't we reverse that program why can't we switch if the program to every day us becoming a little more free you know it's my experience that our spirit just wants to be free you know and anything that takes away the freedom of the spirit is going to end up moving into the emotional system and if you ignore it it goes into the mental system and if you ignore that it goes into the physical system and then that's what becomes, you know, that disharmony becomes a discomfort, becomes a disease process. And so anything that you're carrying like that is you've been ignoring it a long time. And we, we become trapped become ultimately. ultimately. Yes. And we create the trap. We create the prison, the trap, and we just strengthen that. And, you know, and, and you know, I think the the more rigid our thoughts are, you know, that's the, that's the big challenge with any of our, you know, any of the people that we work with, those rigid thought forms and rigid thought patterns are the most difficult to break or change. And, but those rigid patterns are, you know, that's part of the prison and that's, you know, usually what in, results in a disease process. Yeah, I remember working with an athlete here in, in town in, in Calgary. Uh, and he was a high-performance athlete. And I, this fellow used to get physically sick before he would go on court. Mm -hmm. bad. He was a badminton player. And I remember speaking to him about it. He was, he was ranked number one in Canada and 15th in the world at the time. And when I asked him, you know, what was he thinking? How did he prepare to, to go on court? And so I said to him, how do you prepare if you were playing a, you know, a club member? And he said, I wouldn't, I'd just go out there and beat him. And then I said, well, how do you know? And he said, well, he said, I'm number one in the country. It's like, you know, a Ferrari racing a Volkswagen. He said, and I'm the Ferrari. 
And then I remember saying to him, you know, so how would you prepare if you were playing the, the number one player in the world, who at that time was from Indonesia? And his whole physiology just collapsed right in front of me. And he said, well, now I'm the Volkswagen. So he had actually defeated himself before he even stepped foot on the court. Right. Based on what you're talking about, that prison, you know. Yes. Or, or, or limitation. He's creating yeah. limitation. And, yeah. and that's the, the, another one of the programs I find consistent with all humans is that we have to create limitations. And why? Yeah, we're, you know, if, if, if we're unlimited beings, then why aren't we becoming more unlimited? Why aren't we removing those limitations? You know, it, you know, and on the spiritual journeys, we, you know, they talk about where you have to embrace your fears. Well, your fears are limitations. You know, that's what's triggered in your emotional brain that, that, you know, you go into these negative emotions of fear or anger or grief, sadness, loss, or, you know, Stress, all of those are just your limbic system kicking in. So why aren't we more effective at clearing that out? Why aren't we more effective at, at resolving those issues? And also, <laughs> you know, a question I've always asked is, you know, if you can be traumatized or injured in the blink of an eye, why does it have to take what seems like forever to go over it? Well, it's because we're trying to fix yeah, it's back to, you know, the, the Einstein quote about, you know, you can't fix a, a problem in the same energy that it was created. But, you know, if this is created, if this problem is created in your emotional brain, why are we trying to fix it with our neocortex and our logical brain? Exactly. And, and that's what most of the, you know, the, the therapies are about is getting you to, you know, talk about things over and over. And, you know, many of the people that I see that have have these histories of trauma, they'll say, when do I get to stop talking about the, the rape or the, you know, the abuse? When do I get to stop talking about it? Well, when it's an, when it, when it's a non-issue. And so let's make it a non-issue. And so, you know, that's one of the, one of the processes that I've developed and worked with is that when they finish, they'll say, no, you know, think about the traumatic event. And they'll say, well, it's either way over there, and I know it's not mine, or it's here, but it's fuzzy, and it's... And I even had one one time say, I can't remember the name of the perpetrator anymore. Yeah. Wow. So that you so truly that, go in there and neutralize the charge. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. just, yeah, you, you take the charge off of the memory, so it's it's just a memory. You don't yeah. forget it, but it's, it's you think about it, it's just a memory. It's not a... You, you lose that constriction, tensing, mm -hmm. body protection, survival uh, reaction that it goes into every time you think of that, you know, perception. You know, it's you know, the quote of, it's not what happens to you in life, it's how you react to it, you know, so. Right, so that's, you know, like in my work, and that it really is correlating with when I say to people, you may have coped with it, and we can fill in the blank of what it is, because survival requires us to cope and contain and and make it so it doesn't sort of affect the rest of your being so you can go on to work and feed the kids and you know you cope but at a certain point that charge is still sitting there and it is still impacting you and even the energy invested in in coping is not available to you 10 20 30 years down the road and um, I'll do certain processes with people where we go into the psyche in the emotional uh, world uh, uh, from the emotional world and 
go to a process where they can neutralize that energy so that the it's like taking a photograph, bringing it to the present, cleaning it up, neutralizing the charge from it. We almost visualize it as we cut a corner off and let the, the energy drain up. Put it back into the archives because it's the past. It's a memory. But now that energy is available to you today to create what you want going forward. So it's, it, is that kind of paralleling? And, and I think you've yeah. gone into deeper levels but of the psyche. That's what's so cool. Yeah. Well, it, it's, you know, I, I'm sure it's similar. You know, I, I find that we're, we're all on this journey and we all have pieces of the puzzle and we all have things that work sometimes that don't work sometimes, that sort of thing. And one of the things that I found with people that are, you know, that I see that have been through different, you know, many times by the time I see them, they've done everything they've heard of. And so, you know, we start to check, but I've, I find that if I check, um, how free they are from the trauma and you know, or yeah, how free they are from it. And many times it still tests zero, even though we've, they've gone through different processes and, and you know, all the, the different therapies and things that I've worked with and therapists that are amazing people that do amazing things. But when you, you know, you work with them and you, you start to test, well, what's the lock? on creating that change to make it sustainable, to make it yes. where you don't have to go over it again. Because, you know, all my lots of friends that do therapy and all kinds of different therapies, they always say, well, we're working on the same thing over and over. <clears throat> because, you know, you get it to clear and resolve it in the now, or we, we work to clear and resolve it in the past, but it's still the cause of it still coming in the front door into the, in the future. And then you've got to resolve it again now, or, you know, in an hour in the past. And so I think uh, move us moving therapies, moving into working in the future with the people is it's what I'm seeing is more effective now than working in the now in the present or in the past. That's a really cool concept. Please develop, uh, talk a bit more about that working yeah. with clients in the in future, future, right then in the present or the past. I think that's powerful. Well, it's just having the intent, you know, because our intent creates everything. So why don't we just use the concept of, all right, my future is coming in. Well, let's just harmonize it as it comes in because we have pro our, part of our programming, our epigenetic programming. That's what I've been mapping is the epigenome. And <clears throat> looking at that programming that comes in, it comes in, it either comes in distorted and then we work in the present to harmonize it. So we have a harmonious memory of the past or else it, you know, it, or else it comes in distorted. We keep it distorted and then we have this traumatic thing stored in our memory. So why can't we just harmonize it before it comes in? So we don't have so much work to do. And mm. so we can, and, and just let it come in harmonious, stay harmonious and be go into the memory harmonious. And so working in the, in the, working in the future of how it's coming in and how we're creating it. And that's why I've been, you know, doing all this work in epigenetics is trying to figure out well, what is the code okay. that's there that's creating, you know, epigenetics is that there's a signal from somewhere, which we know is your, from Bruce Lipton's work. It's, you know, it's coming from your, your minds, your brains that's coming into your DNA telling your DNA what to do, how to express. All right. Well, that's, that signal is coming in and that's where I started years ago was, well, if there's a signal coming in, I coming out, I can put a signal in Let's see if we can come up with a signal that will correct the disharmony 
or you know, or the negative programs, if you want to call them that, or but just the disharmonies in that signal. So that the purer the signal that your brains are sending to your DNA, then the better the system's going to be. And mm -hmm. it's like, well, where are these? Uh, why is this signal being corrupted? And, and you know, can we harmonize it? Can we fix it? And so, how do you do that? With a hammer. <laughs> you know, when everything fails, you use a hammer and duct tape, right? When it does hammer and duct tape, everything is right. resolved. But, but I mean, it's cool that you're talking now about going to the source code and getting the master key is what I'm hearing. Right. It, we, we come in with source code. And, you know, we come in with this code. And that's what I've been mapping. Like I say, I've been mapping the epigenome. What is the source code? And what are these programs that occur over and over in humans? You know, and, and there's, you know, in testing and working with thousands of people, you start to see that these are the trends. And, you know, and, and there are things like, um, well, I find that 99% of the people can only see 51% of the truth. 51, what is the truth? Okay, let's just say 51% of information accurately. Okay. And the other 49%, they have to distort. So that when we have, you know, conversations with our, or disagreements with our intimate relations, we always feel like, where's this coming from? I didn't say that. I didn't mean that. What are you talking about? What is this? Because we both distort the information, it won't fit back together. So if you want to, you know, so that's one of my goals is, well, let's just, change that program to where we can see the truth 100% of the time. Because most of the mistakes we make in life are made on the emotional story that we made up. Correct. Rather, you know, that's why hindsight's better than, you know, foresight wills, because we're making up stuff. And, you know, and, and another thing that's, that's consistent across the board, but there are different percentages, but we all have a, a, a gloss ceiling in that, um, you have a percentage that you can be successful. And this was a real puzzle working with the lead performers was that if you, you know, if your potential is a hundred percent and you get to, um, you know, and you're, we'll say that you're, cause high achievers will be 60%. So they can be 60% successful and really high achievers will be 70%. And the only 90 percenters I ever found already had an Olympic gold medal. And so that's why they could be that successful because they didn't have to mess, mess it up. And so if you're, we'll say 60%, well, you get to 65, 70%. Oh no, things are going too good. I've got to self-sabotage. I've got to mess this up. Okay. Sound familiar? Very. Yeah. yeah this is too close to home, Ken. Let's, let's just end it now. <laughs> well, well, yeah, right. And, and it, you know, it's just part, you know, part of the human condition. So it was like, all right, well, can we find that geometry? Can we fix that so that, that people can be a hundred percent successful? So if whatever you focus on, you can be a hundred percent successful. So if you want to be miserable, let's just not be only 60% successful. You know, oh, wow. let's do it. Right. Or if you want to be, you know, happy, let's be a hundred percent happy. You know, let's not, you know, let's take the governor off. And, you know, that, that's, has been, I think, crucial when you're working with, you know, if people that are working with say chronic disease and their program that they can only be successful at resolving it, 
you know, 60%, then that's why we talk about things are only in remission or something as opposed to it being the cause being resolved so that the epigenetic signal isn't still saying, okay, make rheumatoid arthritis or make a cancer or make a, make depression or whatever, you know, let's, let's, you know, let's get that where whatever you focus on, you can actually be successful at being you or having the experience that you want to have. And if you get there and you don't like it, then just choose a new one. It's all right, but let's just be successful at it. You know, in so, sport, it was really, sorry, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, so, so people are successful focusing on the, the problem as well as the solution. Because I've always said in order to have a problem, you have to be good at it. You have to practice it. And people, they tend to get stuck in that, that programming where they keep practicing the same self-talk, the same belief system over and over again. They're really good at it, having that problem. You know, like I say, if someone has got a problem with alcohol as an alcoholic, they're really good at drinking. They know where to get the, the drink, no matter what time of day. Same with someone who's got a problem with overeating. They know where to find food and they're really good at eating. There's no problem putting the food in. And so in order to have a problem, you have to practice it again and again and again. You become successful at having the problem. And I think well, the flip side of that is you can become successful on becoming successful when you, what you focus on grows, you know. Well, yeah, I, I agree. Let's just take one step behind that. Yeah. You know, why are they good at drinking? Why are they good at overeating? And one of the epigenetic programs that I found that everyone has is that we have to have an addiction. Mm. Mm. And so if you have this program running that you always have to have an addiction, then you're creating a new addiction. You know, and that's why many people in the 12 step program, they just, replace their addiction to alcohol with their addiction to meetings. Right. Okay. Which yeah. is that socially acceptable, you know, and for some of us that are workaholics, that addiction is acceptable, <laughs> you know, so society likes some addictions and not others, but I, I haven't found a human that doesn't have this program that you have to addict to something. And, so, and if, you know, you can, it's acceptable to be addicted to food, but it's not acceptable to be obese. Okay, so now you've got a paradox to work with there. Or am I addicted to, to not being addicted? <laughs> right, okay. there, there's, there's a paradox for you, yes. But, yeah. but you know, and, and, and people come in and say, yes, I'm an addict. And I say, well, I'm an addict too. And they say, what, what do you mean you're an addict? And I said, I'm addicted to oxygen. I'm addicted to water. I'm addicted to food. <laughs> so, you know, don't think you're, you're, you know, this is that addictions are all bad. You know, I'm addicted to sunshine, you know, so, and I'm really not wanting to get rid of that addiction. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's chocolate. Uh, yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but, you know, but that's when you remove that need for addiction, you know, it's very common for people to come back and say, now I can eat one square. I don't have to eat the whole slab every time, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's just, letting people choose what they want as opposed to having this program saying you have to do this. And, and these programs are all working perfectly. And, you know, I, I think one of the things I find really interesting, I, I work with the concept of 12 virtues. And then I think that everyone that comes in has 
a life, we'll call it a life lesson. It's, a, it's an experience that they want to be able to overcome. And so I test <clears throat> which one of these virtues is half is missing. So like a, uh, a very common one is like, which we see a lot with mothers, I think, but, but lots of people have this. And it's that it's a, the empowerment, disempowerment. So they like the people who empower others, a lot of us healthcare people, and we disempower ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so we, so we don't, when we need help, people won't show up or we won't let, I can do it myself. And we, you know, so we, we always disempower ourselves by, and we're empowering others. But then there are people who have the flip side. It's like everybody empowers them and they disempower others. And you put those two in a room, then that's quite makes, and, and lots of times that'll be people that are married mm-hmm. that they'll attract on that to, to, to create the, the, the balance so they really learn the lesson. Like the narcissist, the narcissist and the codependent? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Remarry are just parts. Yeah. Yes. And so when you resolve that lesson, once the lesson is learned, the universe quits arranging it and setting it up for you to experience. So dealing with that paradox, how do you deal with that then, Ken? Well, first thing is, you know, the first thing is to look at, uh, to identify the, the paradox. And, and I think that's a, a, a great skill that we can all develop is what is it we want or more easily, because our programming coming in is that we're way better at saying what we don't want. We don't want, yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like when I do, when, when I go in and do like a, a corporate assessment, you know, and I put up on, on the board, it's like, okay, what do you have that you want to change about your business? And then what do you want to keep? And when they, what they want to change, they'll list out all these things they want to, to change. And then when I get to what do you want to keep? They look at me like I have three horns. And so I have to go through it and say, okay, do you want to keep your logo? Do you want to keep your, you know, your mission statement? Do you want to keep, you know, and, and, and there are things that they like, but they're not used to, you know, our programming isn't to see what it is that, that we want. It's what we don't want. All right. So, so it's <clears throat> identifying, well, okay, what is it that you don't want? So, so an, uh, an example I'll, I can give you is, uh, right, you're driving down the, you know, you're driving down the freeway or you're driving on a road and somebody cuts you off and, or you, you know, you're late for a meeting and the traffic stands still and you're, you're getting into this stress state. Okay. Well, it's obvious of what you don't want is to be impatient. Okay. You don't want to go into the road rage or the whatever. And what you do need is the patience. Okay, so if you can recognize the paradox, and then I use a process that I developed that outdoes affirmations and it's more effective. And it's if you create a statement of like, I have mastered, in other words, already talking that you're in the future because it's already past. Okay, so I have mastered always being patient, always being impatient both and neither and then swallow 
So if you, ma- if you master what it is, what it isn't, both and neither, then it resolves the entire paradox. And then you can have, then you can choose what you want as opposed to the paradoxical programming, always pushing you away from one and pushing you to the other. I'm sure you've what, noticed that what it, whatever it is you want in life ev- evades you and what you don't want comes and knocks on your door. Yeah. And so what does the swallowing do? Oh, when, when you swallow that instant that between inspiration and, you know, inhaling and exhaling, <clears throat> what my experience is that the brain is open to imprinting a new instruction and so when you swallow, it locks it in, and then your subconscious, your illogical brain will work on it 24 hours a day to solve that problem. Sometimes it happens instantly. It's like people do in the impatience one. They'll just, okay, you know, they just relax and go, okay, it's fine. And some, even people with, you know, chronic pain, sometimes the pain is gone instantly, and, and, and I find that it's about 60% takes time. It has to unwind and rewind back the right way. And, and the other 40%, we get those instant miracles. And, you know, I, it's, I, I can't call on which you're going to get. It's, you know, it's you and your programming and your process. It's, you know, you're doing the work. You're creating your own solution and creating your own uh, evolution because it's about evolving and being free. You know, I think everything in life either controls you or you, you know, or you control it. And anything that that triggers irritation, anything that triggers frustration, those are little red flags that something still controls you. And so figure out what's the paradox, create the statement, swallow and let it go, you know, and then, and see what happens. Do you have to believe in it that, for it to work? It's a great question. Um, you know, I, basically, I tell people don't believe in anything. You know, b- believe in yourself. You know, uh, you know, believe in the supreme being. You know, believe in the creator. But you know, don't believe in me. You know, don't believe in techniques. Just test it, try it, see what happens. You know, I think life is an interactive uh, process as opposed to it being a, a mental game of, you know, of, of thinking that you're right. Because as soon as you think you're right, you're going to be wrong. You know, no, no, nobody's smart enough to be right all the time and nobody's smart enough to be wrong all the time. We're always in the mix somewhere. So rather than just- believe... Rather than believe, I, w- 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 the way I look at that is, can I be open to consideration? Can I just yes. open to the experience and take it under consideration and then let it inform me if it's a fit or not, if it works or not? If it doesn't work, that's okay. Let's go to another opening. There's a willingness. Yes, yes. It's just it's being open. And that's, again, away from that rigid thought of that it has to be this way. You know, and, you know, one of the, you know, techniques of, that people use is using the word, the, the S word, skeptical. Yeah. Not the and S the, word. The S word. <laughs> oh, and the, boy. <laughs> and, you know, and the, the, what, the, what that tells me is that the skeptics, they want somebody else to prove it for them 
and they aren't they aren't running their own experiments in their own world in their own life and they're missing all the fun mm-hmm. you know and if it's like you know it's like you know don't believe me just test it try it and you know at if you try something that you know working with me you get one of two things one is you've been in, entertained by a crazy person or <laughs> or maybe something works and maybe something changes and so the reason that, one, the reason I asked yeah. that question is as soon as you were saying it, you know, as much as I've been I've been out of Glasgow f- since 1980, you know, it's the old saying you can take the boy out of Glasgow, but you can't take Glasgow out of the boy, right? And you, automatically, I hear the voice going, "Yeah, right," because I know that that's what a lot of my my Scottish friends would be saying, "Yeah, right." Yes. But it was mm-hmm. interesting that at the beginning of the conversation you mentioned about cultural nuances and how that yes. impacts you know mm-hmm. and there's certain cultures that are more open to it and there's others that are actually completely closed to it you know they yes. just won't go there it's almost like i remember billy Conley talking about a skit that he did and he said show me the holes in your hand and i'll believe you're christ yes <laughs> yeah. and so it's really that <laughs> show me the proof first of all <laughs> you know and and still the holes in the hand, they could you could have shot yourself, you know. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm still not convinced. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and, and, you, know it, you can you have the choice. You know, you can go through life looking for solutions, or you can go through life looking for problems. Well said. You can look. You can look for what's looking for something being correct and and something being incorrect or being accurate and inaccurate. It's your choice. You know, and if that's working for you, knock yourself out. But if it isn't, then you might want to try something a little different. So can you speak a little bit more about that, Ken, about the individual mind, the group mind and the global mind? Well, you know, the all right, the individual mind. Okay, that's more you, yourself, your perception, your beliefs, your ideals um you know that's your individual perspective you know so we have that separate perspective you know as as we talked the other night about your you you know you're unique and special just like everybody else you know is that you know we're all one and we're separate well we have that separate perspective of you know that you know, you smash your finger and your pain receptors work and, you know, you feel it, you know, and, and whether you're calling this physical world the illusion or just the, the visible world, you know, you can call it whatever you want to, but, you know, you have that perception and people connected to you far away with, due to biophotons may be having that, uh, may have, may feel it. Um, you know, then there's the, you know, the collective mind, the collective intelligence is that when you, when you have commitments, when people commit to something together, then that creates a bond. And then there's a, a communication on that level. And then there's the, you know, the, the global or the, you know, the more expanded, you know, humanity, that consciousness and that awareness and that, you know, and, and so we're, you know, we're part of this evolutionary process that we're evolving as sentient beings, as, as humanity. We are evolving individually. You know, and my philosophy is you're only responsible for you, you know. So 
evolve. You know, it, the, you know, we talk about, you know, in these changing times is those who can adapt the most efficiently will come out ahead. And I think it's those that who can evolve most efficiently and effectively, then yes. we'll have a, have, a, have a nicer experience. And so it's, well, okay, how do we develop our evolutionary skills? And one of these is to recognize our negative programming or negative influences, or, you know, things that are creating disharmony, frustration, irritation in us. And you can either see it and feel it within yourself or the people that are coming into your life that you're attracting, whether it's the patients you're seeing or the people that show up or people that you meet, those are, you know, are reflection of you and your thoughts and, and, uh, you know, you're creating all of it. Well, think accountably, maybe, you know, think. <laughs> <laughs> now you're getting very radical. Uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, you want people actually to take accountability and free themselves rather than going into victim and blame and, and case. You know, I've, I've made that uh, uh, comparison in replacing blame with accountability. I say to people, look, the minute you choose blame in any direction, it's, it's like you've walked into the, the prison cell or the cage, right? Uh, right. And, and, and whereas when you choose accountability, the door opens mm. and you have an out because as soon as accountability is there, you have solutions. And the other piece is what you were saying is that I've always, always, always preached, you know, every, <laughs> every so many times cycles in history, people go into revolt, right? They, 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 you know, they, they, it's like a revolving door. Uh, they've had enough and they go into revolting. And I think, why not just evolve instead? Like rather than revolve, why not evolve and change the story? And that's what I'm hearing from you. And, and I think if we look at, you know, the pattern of mankind, it hasn't been evolution. It's been devolution. Okay. Not only around, but then spiraling De downwards, whatever that. Right. You know, we're, we're us getting new depths of depravity or, you know, or, you know, and it's, it's interesting <laughs> that in this devolution, people think they're doing the right thing. They think they're doing good and yeah. they're not. You know, um, you know, like I said, nothing's all right, nothing's all wrong, but still, you know, being able justifying that the company that you have makes products that poison water or you know pollute the planet, then you, maybe you're making money for your investors, but is that sustainable? Is that good in the long run? Probably not. And I think that's back to that. 51% seeing information accurately and making up another story and us justifying what we're doing for that, you know, the means justifies the end. And it's interesting how you talk about, you know, seeing the story. Um, the other night you shared with us when we were having a little chat uh, with Trun and I about the time when you worked with the monks in Tibet. Can you, can you talk about that again? About the... Well, I this the story that they were running right you know, because we look at monks and we assume that they are these evolved human beings that have got their act together so to speak <laughs> you know um, and, but and, and they've and, not found anyone has got their act together <laughs> right and, and, and that and that's <laughs> the, the you know that's the fun, the fun part is when i do you know run into the the gurus and the monsters and that sort of thing. And then I start checking their epi epigenetic signal, 
you know, they're, and doesn't matter how many years they've been meditating in the mountains or whatever. It's, they, they still have that same, uh, program, human programming that, uh, needs to be reserved, reversed or resolved with resolution. Resolution is the real key there, I think. But, you know, you ask about the, you know, I was very honored to be asked to, to, to go to, to Lhasa in Tibet to the, to Jokong. And Jokong is 1,300 years old. Um, the temple that, and that's where the Dalai Lama would live if he was not in exile. And at first I was asked to work on the two head monks. Instead of having one head monk, they have one outward facing that deals with the Chinese and the Chinese oppression and, and um, how they're, uh, you know, it's really interesting that here you have uh, this, highly uh, conscious, you know, culture living at high altitude, you know, that 12,000 feet elevation of Lhasa um, that, you know, connects you, I think, more easily to your spirit. And the, the Chinese have been, uh, you know, they've gone, gone to Tibet for the, the emperors for guidance for many dynasties. And so so I, I've started to see that it, at different elevations, we have different connections. So if you're, you know, sea level to uh, 4,000 feet is mostly your physical body connection. You're, all right. And then from 4,000 to 8,000 feet elevation is, um, is, is your mind. It's more mental. And then from the 8,000 to the 12,000 is emotional. And then above 12,000 is a more of a spiritual connection. So here is, here's Beijing and the, the government, you know, from Chairman Xi at, you know, 300 feet or basically at sea level, trying to govern people living at the higher consciousness, you know, of the of the spirit at 12,000. It's really interesting to see that dynamic that the low consciousness thinks that they can govern the high consciousness. And, uh, but, you know, it was interesting. I, you know, I started off and I worked on the, the two head monks. One, like I said, one is inward facing it, making sure that the temple works and the monks are doing their learning and having their ceremonies and that sort of thing. And the other one deals with the Chinese and the government and, what they won't let them do, or, you know, they talk, the Chinese say, oh, well, we freed Tibet, but the Tibetans cannot get a passport. They cannot, they can now leave Tibet to go to China, but they can't go anywhere else. And so the, the people really are not free at all. But um, anyway, so I worked on two of the monks and one of them had frozen shoulder and he comes in the next day and I said, well, how's your shoulder? He puts his arm up and he says, I'm the stat in two translation. I'm the statue of Liberty. I thought, okay, wow. that's, 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 that's pretty good. And, and the it's other one, had, yeah, right. And the, and the other one comes in and says, yeah, my lower back pain is gone. And so they would give me every, it was almost every other day, they would give me three or four of the monks to work on. And I was having to work English to Mandarin, Mandarin to Tibetan, and then back. So it was double translation. And, was interesting that I found that the negative emotion that all of the monks were 
stuck to, stuck, you know, that they had locked in was resentment, mm. you know, resenting that, you know, they're being watched 24 hours a day by nanny cams in the temple and then army military on the roofs of the buildings around the temple uh, in the city of Lhasa. They cannot say that we're Dalai Lama. They can, they can say the DL. They cannot see him. They cannot communicate with him whatsoever. So they were all carrying this heavy resentment. So when we resolve that paradox within them, um, then most of their, uh, well, their, their physical issues resolve. So when I finished, that's what, that was their feedback to me was that we have to heal everyone and no one helps us. And they said, Western medicine doesn't work. Chinese, Japanese doesn't work. Tibetan doesn't work. And they said, and what you've done with us has resolved all of our issues. And so, you know, that, that was, you know, nice feedback. But the other thing was that I was there during the, the butter lamp uh, festival. Mm -hmm. And, but as a foreigner, I was not allowed to go. And even the, one of the, Friends that I made there, he was a retired professor of art from the University of Tibet. And, you know, he was told, well, if you go to this ceremony, you'll lose your retirement. And, you know, so anyway, they, my other friends that could go went and they filmed it. And you could see that, you know, that, so that they reduced the number of people going. And all the police wear these flashing red, blue lights. So you can see all the police. And then, you, you know, yeah, the Chinese you know, the police. <clears throat> and then you can see the, you know, the other people that were there. But when the monks sang their chants for this festival out off, off of the top, off of the roof of Jokang, you could feel that the resentment was gone. You could feel that it was just pure love that was being broadcast. And, and that was, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, I was asked to go to see, can, can we resolve this? Because, you know, they're not going to take over China, you know. And so it's like, how do we raise our consciousness and protect ourselves, you know, by just being able to hold the consciousness? So again, the, just because something's been there a long time, it doesn't mean it's going to take a long time to resolve it. Correct. And, yeah. and probably the most interesting person I worked on was a, a guy that the, okay, so the, Chinese government, they put to get, put this, we'll call it a board that has to govern the, the monastery. And it's made up of people that are, you know, part of the Chinese government. And this guy was on that board. So here he is having to regulate and make decisions about the monastery and, and the, you know, the Buddhist faith and that sort of thing. Well, this, he born in Tibet and raised Buddhist, but he wasn't raised or trained on how to govern his religion. And the stress, he was more stressed than the monks. So, that, you know, talk about a paradox of, you know, you follow your religion, but now you have a job that you have to control it. Wow, you know that 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 creates a paradox, you know. So yeah. then, that, so we so we work to resolve that. So and this, you this... also shared, sorry, you also shared the story the other night about the cricketer 
uh, from the UK, Indian in the UK. Uh, because yes. I think this is really good about, you know, how um, cultural uh, can affect us on our performance as well. That it's not just a, you know, an inside job from yourself, that there's so many other influences that are affecting that. Right. Right. Well, this, yeah, this young man, he, he, you know, he played for, he was chosen to play for England in the West Indies and he failed. And so he came back and he was out of the national squad and they didn't know what to do with him. And so he was sent to work, you know, he was sent to Cape Town to find his way. And one of the coaches here put him together with me and we did what I do with elite performers, which basically I, that's what I was known for is taking underperforming elite performers take them apart, put them back together, take them to the highest level of international competition, plug them back in at a higher level and, you know, and, and, you know, and watch their performance and, you know, and see, see them perform. But, um, so he came to Cape town and we worked on him and we got, uh, you know, some nice results. He goes back to England and he was, um, chosen, um, to play for England again. And he went on to captain England for eight years. And uh, his name's, his name's Nasser Hussain, but uh, it was just interesting when we started, it was, he's, you know, father's Indian, mother's English. And I said, but you know, you're trying to play cricket as an Englishman. Mm. (laughs) And he says, yes, I'm trying to play as an Englishman. I said, well, you know, 50% of you is Indian. I said, no, why are you suppressing the flair? Why are you suppressing the special uniqueness? Why don't you use both of them? And, and he was, the look on his face was as if, what, I can do that? That's possible? Well, you're not going to be told that in England. You're going to, in England, you're going to be told to play like an Englishman. Yes, but you've got this really nice genetic package. So why don't we see what we can pull out of that? And, and so you when you have collapse of paradox. Yes, yes, there's another paradox. Yeah. That if, if I play cricket, I have to play like an Englishman. Uh, in case you haven't noticed, the Indians play really good cricket. <laughs> of course they do. They're the best, but we're not going to go there right now. We're, uh, we're, we're, we're just going to leave that one alone because we don't have that long in today's. Uh, right. uh, uh, so so uh, a little bit more um, on the uh, sacred geometry when you started out. And I really liked how you identified the language of the neurons and, and, and uh, talk about uh, shape um, and color and light in a sense. And, and, you know, it makes me think of, um, you know, in the Hindu system, we're talking about, everybody knows what mantras are, you know, the spoken Mm -hmm. word, but people aren't as familiar with the yantras, which is uh, Mm -hmm. the actual sacred geometry of the sound of Om Mm -hmm. always organizes itself through cymatics, you know, through sound into the yantra. And, 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 and what I'm imagining is the sacred geometry of what the neuron would be able to understand that language. And so uh, tell us a little bit more about your development and use of that, 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 those keys that you've created. Well, it's all of the ancient tribal cultures have always used geometry. You know, Native Americans put on their, you know, their headdress, their ceremonial 
goods and they dance and move. And so they're creating dynamic sacred geometry. Or if we look at, you know, the cathedrals in Europe, whether it's the labyrinths in the floors or the stained glass windows or the geometry of the buildings. And if you look at, at you know, whether Watt. it's Anch Anchor Wat, yes. Yeah. And, and all of the temples there. And the, you know, so in older times where, you know, that we didn't have 5G and Wi-Fi and, you know, radio waves and, you know, they, they were less bombarded, I think, with, with uh, external energies that, you know, they could feel, you know, and, and the, the, most of the, you know, cathedrals are built on ley lines. They're built on power centers and it, where, you know, and they had, you know, people who could feel that and they would, they would go and, and, and plug into that. But, you know, geometry has been a part of building, you know, pyramids and, Near, on or near all the pyramids is the symbol of the flower of life. And, you know, the sacred geometries are worldwide. And I was ex um, exposed to the work. I was doing some work in Zurich. And uh, one of the patients I was working with there, she said, uh, you have to go, you have to go see Emma Kuntz. And I said, okay, where do I go find her? Oh, she's dead. <laughs> oh, okay. right. What are you telling me? Yeah, what are you no? What are you telling me here? <laughs> and oh, she has a museum. And uh, but fortunately, my friend that I stay with there, I said, "Do you know Emma Kuntz?" And she said, "Goes to her library, pulls out a book, and goes here. You, here you go." And Emma Kuntz was born in like 1879. She died in about 1963, and she spent her entire career building. Ge complex geometrics on one meter by one meter graph paper, uh, one centimeter square graph paper, one meter by one meter. And you would go to see her. And, well, okay. She always used this process of, and she always did it within one, you know, uh, day cycle. She used a pendulum to determine what color, what shape, what direction, that sort of thing. And she built these complex images. And when you go into that museum, you can feel the energy. You can feel what this geometry does. Two of her images have been used as postage stamps for the country of Switzerland. And, you know, she was known for healing the incurables at the time, which was polio and TB. And the man that um, built her museum... Um, was brought to as an infant to her with uh, with polio, and he has no symptoms whatsoever. And so she would look at you and look at your, you know, your aura or your energy fields or whatever she could see, and she'd go pull out of her stack an image, put it on the wall. She'd stir minerals called Iona, uh, which is a magnesium carbonate in water, and have you look and drink and take the minerals and keep drinking it at home. And she was curing the incurables. So I told all my education to go sit in the corner and zip it. <laughs> I don't want to hear what you're, what you think about this. I, I, it's not, but they believe there's something here. She believed that she, what she was doing. So let's just test it. So I started running the experiments that she did and I got the same results. So it's like, okay, there's something here. 
And, but now I've done over 10,000 animated images to get to the level that we are now. And looking at the process of, okay, well, people present, you know, most of the people that come to see uh, all of us, they're like, okay, here's my list of my problems. And it's got four things or five things on it. Right. And then after you resolve those issues, then it's like, well, here's the real list, (laughs) you know? And it was like, you know, and, you know, and, and, you know, in, in healthcare, the, the diagnosis, the last statistics that I saw was that between 40 and I actually think it's 49%, but, um, but 40% of diagnoses by the medical community, 40% of the diagnoses are incorrect. And so, um, yeah, so it's like, okay, well, we, we need to have a system where we not have, we're not diagnosing. So we just take that out of the equation. So let's just come up with, can we come up with a way that is going to create, so my intent, you know, you put an intent out to the universe and then the universe guides you step for step to find that solution. And so I just said, well, I started off with instantaneous absolute healing. And then that evolved into instantaneous absolute alignment with who you truly are and the creator as one. Hmm. And hmm. okay. So, um, <laughs> sorry, I, I disappeared on the screen. And I yeah, know yeah. It's very, okay. it's very po- uh, something just happened. I also felt that when yeah. you yes. said those words, it's yes. like this huge beam came through. And for a second, I also went, super yeah. expansive and then i went oh oh um Darun, we're on a podcast yeah, right. <laughs> Let's back. and so you know it's i think for all of us it's finding you know we, we we have an intent you know what is it you want to experience in your life what do you want to f- find you know we're here for something you know and, and and i think it's up to us to you know to set the intent and then see what the universe provides to you and it, it's step by step and you know and i and i've been you know, if you told us, you know, I come from a science background. If you told a scientist that you're going to do over 10,000 animated images in the next 15 years, I don't think you'd have many people sign up, <laughs> right? But it's been an amazing journey. And, you know, and you, you know, you resolve this, but and then, you know, with the, the people, the people that are sent to you is the ones that show you how to take it deeper and how to go deeper and, and how to go further and further. And, um, so, uh, you know, you just stay the course and it's all a gift and it's all helping you to evolve. So dissolve and evolve. It sounds like, right. Let's just dissolve whatever is, uh, keeping you from blossoming. uh, uh, Well, let's, let's dissolve the, the illusion that we're not, that we're not unlimited beings. That's right. Well, Maya does a great job of that illusion. It's I call it the like Swami Vivekananda talk about the what I call the fact of the illusion. It looks right. and feels so real, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so and for modern day people, instead of Maya, I use the word the matrix, and they go, oh, 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 okay, yes. I, I get what you're talking about, right? Right. Yes. <laughs> so so it's 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 this is absolutely mind bending. I know people are wondering, well. Where do we find him? Where do we learn more about this geometry? So we will definitely have this uh, uh, listed in the notes uh, with this podcast. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, um, I know you call it Br- Brain's Key. 
like B-R-A-I-N-S-K-E-Y, right? And that's... You have uh, more than one brain, so we need a key to all of them. I love it. I love it. Again, see, everything is so well thought out and put out. So brainskey.com can give people access to start to kind of look around as to where you're coming from. Uh, you have some amazing, like a list of a hundred areas you could get uh, even resolution with. So if people want to have an idea of what's the scope of your work, uh, it was impressive just to see that. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's huge and yet so elegantly simple, right? But how many 10,000 images later? You, it's right. Right. Yes, it, to, to be to be an overnight success, it, you know, yes. it takes yeah. people 10 or 15 years, right? Right. And, and, and so you just keep going, you know, you keep going in it and it, you're always shown the next piece. And, you know, some of the things that I had to figure out, I didn't sign up for. And, but it's, it's been a, you know, an amazing journey and, you know, it's, it's not boring and, you know, yes, it's my life and I create it. And if I don't like it, we'll, you know, change it, you know, don't complain about it, change it. And, and sometimes see, that, it's, that source message applies to the human condition. So whether you are playing out your role as a, as a housekeeper or as a cleaner or as an architect or as an entrepreneur, or, you know, we get so identified and lost in our titles and our roles that we forget, uh, you know, that, that it is the driver, it is who you are. And once that comes into alignment, everything you do just automatically lines up. It, it's, it's, uh, uh, and so I think that this is a universal message for regardless of out there in podcast nine who may be listening and, and thinking about this, I think the value is huge uh, uh, that, uh, you know, to, to really address the source code uh, is where you can have solutions and your work has really taken it to that, that place of the source. And, and I see huge value in, in that in helping ourselves and we who are out there supporting others to be able to apply this work and take it to another level. So th this has been amazing. Um, yeah. What a know. gift. What a gift. <laughs> yeah, I, Thank um, you, Ken. Thank you. Uh, it's a great pleasure. You know, thanks for having me show up and talk to you. You're you're in daytime and I'm going into nighttime here. That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I just know there's going to be questions and more questions than answers. And so I think it's we'll take accountability for that and have to do a part two because, you know, people are going to be, yeah, but wait, wait, wait. You know, <laughs> I have more questions, which is a good thing. Absolutely. I, I, you know, that I've found years ago that the greatest gift we give each other is stimulation of thought. Yes. You know, it's yes. like, let's have a new thought and test it. It may be right. It may be wrong. It may apply sometimes or not, but give me a new thought. The same old ones get pretty, pretty boring. Stagnant. So Stay the thought up, for yeah. the day is give me a new thought. <laughs> yes. Okay. Let's make yeah, that I, our theme. Yeah, it was, it was, I think I was at a, at a this year at, at Christmas dinner and the group of people there, you know, they were talking about, well, you know, what do you collect? You know, one of them collected cars and one collected, you know, they were talking about the collections and they asked me, well, what do you collect? And I said, I collect new ideas. Love it. Then I test them. And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but they keep things interesting. Yep, for your consideration. Consideration, yeah. Right, yeah. and so, okay, on that note, I think we, um, 
we better yeah. wrap up. Uh, this has been such a rich episode and, and um, just, I know people will probably be listening to it more than once. Uh, and we really look forward to connecting again in whichever way we can share some more thoughts and, uh, and no, I look, positive. I look forward to it. I think, I think we can, you know, I, I think it'll be fun to examine, you know, things that you've worked on that we, I've worked on that look and compare notes and to see what worked, what didn't work. And, you know, just give people choices. Absolutely. Everybody's unique and they need to have their choices, just like a good buffet. You can have one core item done in so many ways. And somebody says, I'm going to go for that. And somebody goes, I'm going to go for that. They're made from the same material, but right. Uh, yeah. And so I think that's free will at, at, at work and, and choice. And, and, uh, um, and we're just going to bring the awareness. So um, I think that calls for something like a summit or something where we can jump on and really shake things and look at stuff and have Great. people interact. So uh, we'll definitely be in touch. Have a, have a good restful evening. And we're going to have a lot to think about today and new thoughts. Yeah. And Great. Uh, again, thank you so much. And we will... Uh, we will say um, uh, uh, Om Shanti for now. I think that to me is uh, let there be peace, especially on a day like yeah. today with what's happening on the planet. So Om Shanti. And I and I always say, no mistakes. Yeah, no. Mistakes. I love it. <laughs> no I love mistakes. It. <laughs> We trust you found practical value in this podcast and will enthusiastically share it with others in your circle. And if you are so moved, leave us a review or write a post on social tagging hashtag Chai Chat Podcast and we will show our appreciation. Promise. Tarun Puri and Steve Harvey welcome you to join us for a Chai Chat at all of our live events and more. Connect with us with your questions, topic suggestions, and reviews at info at chaichatpodcast.com. At